0: And I'd like to introduce again to you the love of God as we turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Romans 5 5. We'll work through through about verse 11. More and more people are coming back to church. It's good to see your faces. It's like a reunion to see you all again. Um, It's encouraging. The love of God is a constant. God doesn't love you more when you achieve, God doesn't love you more when you accomplish something. God doesn't just love the attractive people. How a person looks really doesn't matter to God. It's really on the inside. How much a person make doesn't matter to God. The color of a person's skin, the language they speak, where they come from, what they have done or not done. The love of God is just like this anchor that holds us steady in the midst of the storms of life. You need to spend some time, really you do, of sitting with the love of God of anchoring yourself in it, of savoring it, of basking in the love of God. Some of you were programmed early in your life that you aren't worthy of love. If we were to use computer technology terminology and say that you have a software problem, when you come up against something, you say, I guess God doesn't love me. God's paying me back for what I've done. The enemy is telling you something that isn't true because the truth is that God loves you so very much. I want to speak about the love of God because it's not an easy thing to get a hold of. But once you get a hold of the love of God, the love of God will get a hold of you. The love of God is really unfathomable. You cannot plummet the depths of the love of God. You cannot imagine the heights of the love of God. If you were to climb the highest mountain, you still would not reach the heights of God's love because it reaches to the heavens. And if you were in the lowest pit, and some of you are in that pit this morning, the love of God reaches deeper still. The very first verse I ever memorized was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want your children, your grandchildren, to memorize that verse. Scholars have spent their entire lifetime plummeting its depths. So the Greeks had three words for love. The first word was the word eros, from which we get the word erotic. Eros is not mentioned in the New Testament, you know, because eros is all about taking. It's all about getting something. Surely on Movies and TV, social media, you'll see an appeal to the erotic. The second word was the word phelos, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phelos is a mutual love, a reciprocal love. It's a love of family and friends. All healthy relationships have some degree of give and take, reciprocity, a concern for one another. But the highest kind of love is not focused on self-gratification Eros is not focused on reciprocation. Felos, the highest kind of love, is called agape love. Agape is focused on the well being of the object, love that's giving and expecting nothing back. The person being loved may not be worthy of that love. They haven't done something to deserve it, something to earn it, something to merit. The love of God has nothing to do with the object. It has everything to do with the subject, namely God himself. So when you woke up this morning, he loves you. And when you go to bed tonight, he'll still love you. One of the first songs I ever heard was a song that goes like this. I won't sing it. (laughs) Love him in the morning when you see the sun arising. And love him in the evening, because he took you through the day. And when you see the pressures coming, remember that he loves you, and he promises to stay. When you make food in the kitchen, God loves you. When you do what you do, your daily work, he loves you. When you, have, when you do things you have no business doing, God still loves you. When you go to places you should go, God loves you. But when you go to places you have no business going to, He still loves you. When you do things that please Him, He loves you. But when you act in ways that displease Him, He still loves you. When you are stubborn, disobedient, recalcitrant, He loves you. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less because God just loves you. There are no conditions to his love. He doesn't love you if, or until, or because. He just loves you unconditionally without conditions. Some of you grew up with conditional love. Maybe you live with it now. I'll love you if, or I'll love you until, or i love you because. It took a while for me to understand something of God's love for me. That God just loves me. He rejoices over me. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. If God had a refrigerator, he'd put your picture on the refrigerator. If God had a cell phone, you'd be first on the cell phone. He's pretty crazy about you. For God so loved the world. I want you to put your name in there and under your mask, just say your name. For God so loved the world. whatever your station in life is, whatever your name is, whatever your education is, whatever your race is, whatever your social strata is, whatever your financial condition is, none of that matters to God. He just loves you because he loves you. There was a famous theologian who was at a big conference and he was in this answer in question time, And someone said, what's the most profound thought you've ever heard? And he said, it goes like this, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. John 3.16 has brought a multitude of people into the kingdom. Martin Luther Luther said John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature. If we were to lose all the verses of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and we still had John 3.16, we'd still have the Bible in its essence. For God so loved you, he so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. For God, you see, this verse addresses all the isms that you'll hear about in the world. For God addresses atheism, which claims there is no God,? So love addresses Eastern mysticism, New Age, which says, God is an important personal force. The world addresses nationalism, which says, God only loves people from our nation. God loves the Africans and the Asians. God loves the Caucasians. God loves the Native Americans. You've never looked in the face of somebody whom God didn't love. That he gave, that addresses materialism. A materialist says that this is all there is. What's mine is mine. God gave. You know, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. His only begotten son, that addresses Islam, because Muslims don't believe that Jesus is God's son. Whoever believes, well, that addresses higher Calvinism that says Jesus only died for the elect. I believe that Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but efficient to those who believe. Shall not perish addresses annihilationism that says this is all there is. There's something more. There's a heaven and there's a hell. But have everlasting life, that addresses Arminianism which says When you sin, you can forfeit your salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves everybody on this planet. The love of God is global. Red and yellow, black and white. (laughs) They are precious in his sight. God loves the drug addicted, the addict. Craving a fix. God loves the sexually immoral, longing to fill the emptiness of their soul. God loves the principled moral person trying to gain favor of God by being good. God loves the stressed out parent in this COVID times, trying to educate their kids, trying to do their work. God loves the Democrats. Pause. And God loves the Republicans. God loves the person in the penitentiary. God loves the kid on the street doing crack cocaine. God loves the teenager vaping. God loves every person. And he doesn't just love church people. Now, I love the people in our church. I love you. But God loves the Catholics, and God loves the Methodists, and God loves the Muslims, and God loves the atheists. God loves everybody. So i got a question for you with a rather long introduction. Can our problems, pressures, trials, and tribulations ever separate us from the love of God? What do you think? Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And our hope does not disappoint us. There are many things you can put your hope in that will disappoint you. You can put your hope in a sports team. I am a lifelong Washington fan. You can be disappointed in your sports team. You can be disappointed in a person. You can be disappointed in a candidate. But our hope in Jesus will never disappoint us because this is what's happened. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. What he's talking about here is the first time he's spoken of the Holy Spirit and love in the context of Romans. The Holy Spirit was given to us at conversion, and every Christian knows something of the love of God. For those who are logical, they reason, God so loved the world, I'm part of the world, therefore I am loved. Where greater love hath no man than this, then God would someone lay down their life for their friend, I am his friend, I am loved. What he's talking about here is happening in the context of trials, tribulations, suffering, and hardship. It's the feeling of God's love. You see, some people get bitter at their sufferings. It's not fair, they protest. It's not right, they complain. It's true we don't rejoice about the divorce or we're not glad about the cancer. But in the pain, we can cry out to God. We can ask God for his mercy We can rely upon our God and experience his nearness and his closeness. Some people going through pain feel that God does not love them. They feel rejected, that God is distant, that God doesn't care. It's hard to believe that God is loving and good, allowing this to happen. We feel so broken and worthless and forgotten. But Jonathan Edwards used to teach about the love of God. And he says there's a difference between Knowing that honey is sweet, in that someone told you that honey is sweet. You read somewhere that honey is sweet. Someone put honey on their biscuit and said, this honey sure is sweet. There's a difference between knowing something like honey is sweet and tasting the honey. And when a believer begins to taste the honey of how sweet God is, then we understand that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given. It is this what Cindy Kirchner discovered in her suffering, that the moon is always round. Though we may not see it, though we may only see a sliver, God is always good. And even though you may not see his goodness, God never stops loving. I say sometimes that The love of God is like a loaf of your favorite bread, abundant and plentiful. But sometimes the love of God is like a crumb that falls from the table. You long for more, but you learn to savor the crumb that has fallen from the table. You might be going yourself through divorce. You didn't go into marriage expecting to split up. Love may not be coming to you through your ex. That's not to say that God has stopped loving you. God is very fond of you. If your heart is open, he will demonstrate his love to you. You may be going through pain. You've been to the doctors, and you're hoping the next procedure will help. I remember when I had a PICC line in my arm for some months. I was given this antibiotic every five hours every day. At first, I resented the medicine. But then God showed me this was part of his goodness making me better. God was pouring his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. Love doesn't always come to us, but love can always flow out of us because God has put his love into us. Paul's view of the love of God is so great, so rich, so unparalleled. He doesn't just say the love of God and move on. He now begins to give a commentary in verses 6 to 11 on the love of God. Look with me at Romans 5, 6 through 11. It says, you see, this is something you need to see. You're on a journey and you need to pull your car over to the side. And look at the view of this, of God's love. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were powerless, when we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is true of all of us, that we were helpless, powerless. The idea is to be weak, infirm, feeble, frail, impotent. Unable to do anything to help ourselves. There was nothing we could do to contribute to our salvation. We were powerless. We were helpless. The proof of God's love is that he put his love onto the ungodly, those most unlike him. No ability to improve our condition. No ability to help ourselves. We like to be, don't we, in the powerful position. We don't really like to be powerless. I think about a child, an infant, being powerless. A newborn is powerless to take care of themselves. They can't feed themselves when they're hungry. They can't change themselves when they have a dirty diaper. They can't comfort themselves when they're frightened. They are powerless to take care of themselves. I think about people at the end of life, feeling incapable, feeling powerless. Across the street, John Whitmer, a man I knew, a very capable man, hardworking man, but in the last part of his life, he was powerless, just laid in a bed as the cancer consumed his body. We were powerless, we were helpless, and God showed his love to the ungodly. God shed his blood for the ungodly. A man named James Harrison has given blood 1,100 times. He's from Australia. Harrison's blood contains a rare antibody to make a medication called D-immunoglobin. It's also known as R-H-immunoglobin. Say it for me, Jack. Immunoglobulin. I'll get it. This medication is given to mothers who are at risk for something called RH incompatibility with their fetus, which means the mother's immune system may attack and destroy the fetus's red blood cells. Well, for the longest time, unborn children were dying from this rare disease known as rhesus disease. It affected children in the womb. And this man in Australia, his name was James Harrison, also called the man with the golden arm, He has donated his blood so many times. It appears that when he was 14, he had some transfusion, some condition, some transfusion. And his blood took on an unusual plasma condition that contains the cure for rhesus disease. In the 60s, it was a widespread disease in all of Australia. And Mr. Harrison's blood contained the cure for this disease. So every week, Mr. Harrison would go and give a you know, transfusion so that infants would not die of this disease. We should commend him for his kindness and for his love, but in a higher and greater sense. Jesus saved us when we were without strength. Jesus saved us when we were powerless. When there was nothing we could do to contribute to our condition. Verse number 7. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Paul is speaking here by way of human analogy. A righteous man here in this reference does not refer to someone declared righteous by God. Righteous, in this sense, is a highly principled person, a just, good, and honest person. Rarely would someone give their life up for another. I read about, over in West Virginia, there was two miners, and they went into a mine. And there was an explosion. And a, they both were trapped beneath. And one of the miners did, had oxygen, a mask and oxygen tank, and the other did not. The one with the tank did not have a family and the one who didn't have a tank did, had a wife and kids. And he gave his oxygen to his friend and there he died. That's a rare thing, isn't it? When someone would give their life for somebody else, there was a ship sailing to India with British soldiers on board and the ship hit something and suddenly sank forcing everybody into lifeboats. There was in this lifeboat a soldier. His name was Russell Alexander. And in that lifeboat was a wife with children. And she spotted her husband there in the water. And she said, there's my husband. And this soldier dove from his lifeboat and rescued this man's life, pulling him onto the boat. And then he himself drowned in the water an amazing thing when someone's willing to give up their life for someone else. Then over to Iraq, there was a man whose name was James Dunham. He was a corporal, and he was standing at a security station. And up to the gate pulled this white Toyota Cruiser, and he asked the driver of the car to get out the truck, to get out of the truck, and he looked suspicious. And then the man ran for it. And the soldiers ran after him and tackled him. But before they could subdue him, he pulled a hand grenade out, and James Dunham dived onto the hand grenade. And we stand at this and we go, This is amazing love. That one would die for another, that one would give up his life for someone else. We say, Are they worthy? The point here is that a man, his love really rarely reaches high enough to die for somebody else. People just don't die for principled people. People don't die for good and kind and generous people. The likelihood that someone would die for someone else is rather small, wouldn't you say? Maybe to put it in more our terms, (laughs) who would you give your kidney to? Somebody needs a kidney. Would you give your kidney away to anybody? I think it's probably a short list of people that you might give your kidney to or give your life up for. In fact, we would say, if I were to give my life, is this person worth it? Do they deserve me to give my life for them? Did Jesus Ask himself that question, did they deserve for me to die? You see, we deserve God's punishment. We deserved hell forever. And God did not wait for moral improvement in us before he made his sacrifice. God demonstrated his love for us in that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to save us when we were helpless and powerless and sickly and unable to make a contribution and unlike him, and irreverent and no fear of God, no respect of God. That's when he died for us. Look at verse number nine. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Wow. God has demonstrated his love to us. God has justified us by his blood. The whole point of Romans, the first five chapters, Paul's kind of like this defense attorney, you know, prosecuting attorney. And he's bringing charges against us right and left. Mankind is being indicted for their sin. The judge sits on the bench hearing this evidence. And the uh, judge says, do you have any defense? And all mankind is silent. (laughs) We've all got our masks on. We can't say a word. (laughs) And then the judge looks to the defense attorney to Jesus and says, and what do you say? And Jesus says, I paid for this sinner's sin with my blood. I paid the death penalty, and they put their faith in me. And the judge smiles, and he bangs his gavel, and he says, I declare you justified. You see, to be justified is to be declared righteous. The only way to have a relationship with a righteous God is to be declared righteous. You see, your greatest need, if you ask me, is not to get the schools open. I know they've been shut down for a while. They've been going virtual. They've been going hybrid. They're trying to go live. I know we can't wait to get life back to normal as soon as possible. Your biggest need is not to get the vaccine. I'm glad to see greater availability. I'll get my second dose tomorrow with Debbie, Lord willing. More and more places are having openings. Your biggest need is not vocational. Some of you have taken a huge hit through all of this and can't wait to get your stimulus check. Your biggest need is not political, getting the right people into office. Your greatest need is to be reconciled back to God, to be justified by faith, to be saved. You need to be saved. Every person needs to be saved. And there's only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And you see, when you believe, when you put your faith in him, you get justified by his blood. Now, if you've been justified by his blood, the question becomes, what's next? He says, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? There's coming a day when God's wrath will be poured out upon unbelievers. Right now, sinners suffer the consequences, which is God gives them over to their sin. But there's coming a day of the great tribulation. Will believers go through the great tribulation? My answer is no. We are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There will be before the great tribulation was called, in my view, the great evacuation. (laughs) Just before we go to battle, we get our people out of the country. Just before there's a fire, we get people out of the fire. Before there's a hurricane, we get people before the hurricane, right? They evacuate. God's going to evacuate his people. Will you be one of them? Are you rapture ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back for you? The Lord himself will descend from heaven. With a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we which are alive will be caught up together within the clouds to be with the Lord, to meet the Lord in the air, to be together forever. Question number one, how much more? And then he goes on in verse 10 and asks this question. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If God so loved us and justified us when we were ungodly, helpless, sinful enemies, how much more will he keep us saved now that we are reconciled? If God did all this when we were ungodly, how much more will he keep us saved moment by moment until we see him face to face. Does God have the power to hold you fast? Does God have the power to save you now and then forever? There's the question, right? If he went to the ninth degree to get you out of this pit of our sin. And save us from the wrath to come when we were helpless. How much more can he keep us saved? You see, salvation is spoken of in three senses. That we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. God has the power to hold you fast. You see, God always finishes what he starts. I'm confident of this, that God who began a good work within you, within me, will continue his work until he's finished it on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So what should be our response to all this? I think Paul can't hold it all in. Look at verse 11. Not only this, but we rejoice in our God. We have learned to rejoice in the midst of our tribulations because we understand our tribulations produce something. Our suffering produces Character. Our character produces hope, and this hope doesn't disappoint us. We've learned to rejoice in our tribulations. We've rejoiced in the fact that God has heaven prepared for us. But now we make our boast in our God. We exalt in our God. We rejoice in God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation, that we are now friends with God. That we are now okay with God. We're on good terms with God. We get to walk with God. It's pretty good news, don't you think? It kind of gets better and better and better. I mean, this is not a truth we just check a box on. This is the truth we exalt in. The word exalt means to exceedingly rejoice. No Christian should be a stoic believer... We should be exalting, rejoicing in our God. And the word here means to celebrate, to glory in. Not only this, but we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. So, coming to communion, what do we have to be celebrating? Verse one, we have peace with God, we are on good terms with God. We have been justified by faith. We have been reconciled. The war is over. Number two, we have a permanent standing in grace. What Sharon was speaking to earlier, that we have access to God anytime, anywhere, confidently, boldly coming into his presence. We have a future hope. Our hope for us is sure and certain. We believe that Jesus is left to prepare a place for us. We have an inheritance that will never be taken from us. Our hope is heaven. We have all of Christ's resources to go with us through trials. We aren't surprised by our trials, by our tribulations. Jesus predicted in this world you'd have your share. We aren't guaranteed a trouble-free life, but we are guaranteed that God produces something in our pain. Our suffering produces perseverance. We keep on keeping on. Our perseverance produces character Proving character, and our character produces hope. We have been loved when we were unworthy. God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God has demonstrated his love at the cross. And we have been permanently removed from God's wrath. The wrath of God fell on Jesus at the cross. That we have been saved from the wrath of God. The songwriter wrote these words. Jesus to Calvary did go. His love for mankind to show. What he did there brought hope from despair. So oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Do you believe it? You have a cup that we'd like to use now to remember the deep, deep love of Jesus for you. He didn't ask, are they worthy? Because we were unworthy. And because we were unworthy, we did not deserve this. There was nothing we could do to earn it. But because we've been shown the deep love of God, we are worthy of his love. Somehow there is a transfer that happens when a person believes from unworthiness to being worthy of God's love, great value, great preciousness. Jesus said in that upper room, the time has come for him to go, to leave this world, to go to the Father. But having loved his own in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He would show the full extent of his love by... Stooping down and serving, and then being obedient to the Father by going to the cross. The cross is the reconciliation of mankind to God. When we believe that Jesus took our place, He substituted Himself, He died vicariously for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him. Here was the full measure of the love of God. And this is why we rejoice in our God. So, Jesus, in that place, that room, He took some bread and he said, this bread is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you break this bread, you remember the Lord's death. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup will remind you of my shed blood. Whenever you drink of this cup, you're reminded the fact of the blood that was shed for you. What I'd like to do, as we open these things up, up, is To hold the bread in our hand and to say, if you're willing to say this with me, this bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And I'm not really good at opening up these little packets. broken my bread before we do break and before we do partake would you pray with me Father in heaven it's a precious time it's a sweet time to be in your presence to have the Holy Spirit here to hear about the cross the great reconciliation the love of God coming down entering into humanity seeing humanity as the problem sin, our problem and then paying that ultimate price of a life. Greater love hath no man than this. than he would lay down his life for his friends. We are your friends now, Lord. Perhaps for some of us that friendship needs to be cleared up. There's some things we need to say to one another. You speak to us all the time, but we don't speak to you quite enough. So here in the quietness of this moment, Lord, there's something we need to say. Can we just say Can we just let our hearts speak now? Maybe there's a sin we need to confess. Maybe there's some love we need to pour out. God, you're near. Feel your presence. So, Lord, know that we love you. And um, we were unworthy. We were sinful, ungodly. We were your enemies. You've reconciled us. We rejoice in you, Lord. We partake of this bread reminding ourselves of the body of Jesus. Would you say these words with me? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And then the cup. The words we'll say is this cup which we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ. This cup which we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ. the love of God is always demonstrated. You never have to question whether God loves you because there will always be a cross and when you believe that God went to that cross, Jesus went to the cross for you, the Holy Spirit applies that to your heart and the Holy Spirit pours that love into you. Now, to my right and left are two demonstrations of love. There's Ken, there's Dan. Joe today was playing Hurt, cut himself before this. I said, Joe, can you play Hurt? Joe says, I guess I have to. He's got a little bandage on his hand. You know, Jesus demonstrated his love. So I'd like you this week to think about somebody who really does need some love and demonstrate love to them. Now, their love language may be different. Some of them have a love language of touch. You need to put your arm around them, hold their hand because they'll feel close to you when you uh, touch them. Some people, their love language is time spent with them. They just need some time together, you know, just in proximity to one another to talk things out. Some people like deeds done for them like my wife Debbie. She's, if I want to love her, it's going to be clean the floor time, right? Or wash the dishes. Some people like affirmation, like just speaking a good word into them, right? just affirming them. You see, love is something that we all crave for someone to love us. But when God begins to work in us, what we want to then do is demonstrate love to somebody else, you see. Because everybody needs to be loved. Every child needs to be loved. Every husband needs to be loved. Every wife needs to be loved. Every person needs love. We were made to be loved. So God went to great extent to come down here, spend a little while in Bethlehem, went over to Egypt, then to Nazareth, to Capernaum, other cities, to show us the love, eventually to the cross. The greatest demonstration of love. For God so loved the world. God so loved you. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Pray with me. God, as we've talked about your love, may we be a manifestation, an incarnation of your love. You tell us, beloved, love one another because love of us is of God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He loves not, knows not God, because God Himself is love. God, thank you that you are love, and thank you for your powerful Holy Spirit. And show us, Lord, who to set this love on, and just to pour that love out to you this week.